0: Amen, do take a seat. Um, Joe's terribly sorry, she's forgotten to release the youth. <laughs> <laughs> the youth. You are released, unleashed. Yes, and for the rest of us, if you've got a Bible, please do turn to the book of Romans and uh, chapter 1, the second part of chapter 1. It's got quite a long reading this morning. We're going to read the second part of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible on your phone or a Bible available, we do have some at the back. You're welcome to take one or borrow one. While you're just finding that, I want to conduct a little experiment based on an article I found um, online from about five years ago. Um, ha- put your hand up if you're a, if you're a guy, a man. Right. Keep, keep, keep your hand up if you have uh, visited the doctor in the last year. Oh, better than average. Very good. Uh, it says that you can put your hands down. It says here that um, this is from 2011, although the doctors here will probably tell me not much has changed. that that one in five men has not visited a doctor in the last year and 6% still wouldn't even if they had chest pains. It says here that uh, only 14% of men admitted to being happy to go and see a doctor while a third revealed that they'll only go if their partner encourages them to or if they really have to. Is this a true story, you doctors? Yeah. The person who wrote this article said, I would characterize it as the same way as they treat their cars. He said, women drive very carefully, make sure that they take it into the garage at the right time. Men, just put their foot down until it's broken. That wasn't the word they used. Um, despite this, this reluctance, despite finding that two-thirds of men had parents or grandparents who'd suffered from cancer, stroke or heart disease. The survey found that 6% would not consult a doctor even if they experienced chest pain. 26% would not make the trip even if they were experiencing profuse sweating a further 9% so they would avoid the doctors even if they found blood in their urine. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said, said, I haven't come for the sinners. No, sorry. He said, I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for the sinners. Got that one wrong. He said, who is it that needs a doctor? Is it the well or the sick? It's the sick. I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for the sinners. Hold that in mind. Joe, and I think Claire's going to help you, are going to read. And it's quite a long passage, so uh, stay with it. We're going to read it from the NIV. We're starting in, actually, I want to start in verse 16 of chapter 1 of Romans and go through to the middle of chapter 2. So do follow through as Joe and Claire read.
1: Go for it. Yeah, can you start in 16? Yeah. Thank you. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith.
2: The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although
1: they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and foolish hearts were darkened,
2: ...who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts.
1: Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women... ...and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men... ...and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion.
2: Furthermore, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God... He gave them over to a deprived mind, sorry, a depraved mind, to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore,
1: have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you
2: towards repentance But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he's done. To those who persist in doing good and seek glory, honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart
1: from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that they have the requirements of the law written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Amen. Thank you so much, guys.
0: Thank you so much, guys, for reading that. That is a long passage, um, a long couple of passages. Nice, happy stuff to talk about today. Um, today's talk is called Who Needs the Gospel? And you have some notes in front of you which should help you help us to remember. If you remember last week we introduced the book of Romans uh, by looking at what the gospel is and I wanted them to start again at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 because really that frames the context for the whole of this chapter. Um, if you remember I sort of depicted Romans a little bit like this, a bit like climbing a mountain and so we've moved on today to the section called the wrath of God. Why is that everyone needs the gospel. This is Paul starting to unpack his argument in pretty full-on detail. If you remember last week, I said the gospel is offensive because it reminds us that no matter how good we think we are, none of us can get to God any other way other than, than acknowledging our weakness and our sin. I said the gospel is the power of God for salvation and transformation and changed lives. And we heard stories of that. I said the gospel is for everyone. And I mean everyone. No matter who we are, no matter what we think we've done, no one is excluded. And the gospel reveals God's righteousness, that state of rightness that Jesus bestows on us through faith, his perfect score so that we can stand before God and not be judged for our own sin. And it's on sin that we need to dwell a bit this morning, and that's not necessarily easy. This is, these are really tough passages. It's kind of nice to kind of wish that they weren't there, but we can't do that. They are there. John Stott said this Nothing keeps people away from Christ Jesus more than their ability, their inability to see their need of him, or their unwillingness to admit it. See, Jesus was once criticized hanging out for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and undesirable people. And he said, as I said earlier, it's not the healthy you need the doctor, but the sick. I've come to call not the righteous but sinners. Now, when Jesus said that, he didn't mean that there are some people who are righteous and therefore don't need salvation. He meant there are some people who think they're righteous and that in their self-righteousness, they're not going to get to Jesus because that's going to get in the way of coming to him and admitting their need. Like I said, if you're a doctor, if, you, if you're ill, you need to go find a doctor and say, I'm ill, I need help, I cannot cure myself you joined, for example, the original 12-step program for Alcoholics Anonymous, the first thing that you're invited to admit is that we are powerless. That our lives have become unmanageable and we need to believe in a power that's greater than ourselves to get any kind of restoration. I can't do this on my own. That's the gospel. And so over these chapters, Paul expands this argument, talks why it's important that everybody needs Jesus, that we're all in the same boat, that human sin and guilt is universal. It's not a popular argument, but it's an essential building block of the gospel, of the revelation of God's plan to save the world. And Paul divides this into four sections. Of, I've listed them out here called Why Everyone Needs the Gospel, and we're going to take the first two this morning and the next two later. So we're going to f- first look at how Paul shows unreligious people their need of the gospel, and then how he shows religious people their need of the gospel. And so we jump in, and as I said, keep that verse 16 in mind, that the, or verse 17, that the gospel is righteousness of God, because these passages get quite dark. But there is no light without darkness. Every Christmas we sing, Jesus is the light of the world. Here's a little picture of the dark world that Jesus is coming to bring light into. We don't need to dwell here for a long time, but we do need to understand this. And if you quote some of these passages out of context, well, they begin to sound very much like a judgmental God. And that isn't all of the point. That doesn't emphasize his kindness and his grace and mercy. You have to see the big picture to get the whole thing. So what about the wrath of God then? The wrath of God. Nigel, I thought you said that God was loving and kind. It seems here that Paul is saying that God is angry, that he's wrath, full of wrath and rage and bad temper. It would be a mistake to compare God's anger with ours. See, human anger is often irrational, a little bit uncontrollable. It usually comes from vanity and revenge. And God's wrath or anger is totally different. You see, God operates from grace. Paul writes later on that God's grace is increasing and reigning, that God loves all that is right and good it's all that's in line with his own moral character consequently if he's all for everything that's right and good he must be all against everything that's bad so god must hate the stuff that isn't good god's own holiness and justice means that he hates sin i'll come back to that later you can put that off for a minute actually thank you the idea that this idea is consistent throughout the bible Wayne Grudem concludes that God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. That doesn't mean that he hates sinners. It doesn't mean mean he hates people who sin. It means he hates sin. But we'll come to that later. In order to fully get to grips on this, we do have to focus for a while on sin, which isn't very politically correct or fun or attractive. I was going to say it's not very sexy, but I didn't think that's a very way of describing it. Um, So the sin, what about the sin of humans, the sin of man? What about that? You see, Paul describes this sin in verse 18 as godlessness and wickedness. And godlessness is where people turn their back on God. And wickedness is how people treat one another as a result of turning their back on God. The word for wickedness literally translates as against righteousness, anti-righteousness against all that is good and all that is God. There's a Western popular philosophy that states, where there is no God, everything is permissible. I don't happen to subscribe to it, but I see where it's coming from. And Paul is alluding to something like that here. See, God creates humans, first and foremost, for relationship with him, for vertical Relationship. And there is a blessing that comes from that. And this passage describes how when those relationships that were designed for goodness and blessing and peace are deliberately severed or destroyed vertically, then that affects relationships horizontally. And you can use this word, the word idolatry is a good general word to cover this. You see, the first sin, Paul says in 21, is not being grateful to God, refusing to worship him. Not acknowledging our dependence on him. It's a small step, but it's an important step. First of all, we just start to say, we can do this on our own, we don't need him. And what that leads to is a substitution of God for idols. It says, verse 23, here they exchange the glory of God for cheap images. See, humans were created to worship. We, all of us, have to live for something we need a purpose to validate us and define us. In our rebellious state, Paul says, we humans choose to worship and serve anything and everything except the God who made us. You know, our career worships all, our, our culture worships all kinds of things, doesn't it? Career and success and celebrity and wealth. And none of those are inherently evil in and of themselves. But the danger is that all of them have the potential to take the place of God. And that's what Paul calls idolatry. When we choose, instead of worshipping the creator, to worship the created. And so we turn our back on God. It's not that we become unreligious, by the way. We just switch our religious practices onto different focuses. And that, Paul says, has consequences in verse 24. I love what the message says for verse 23 and 24. It describes it like this. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands. Somebody wrote a song about that. Um, Who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines that you can buy at any roadside stand. And so God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. I'm not going to stand in your way, God says. You make the choice here. Imagine, if you will, a toddler who's going through the terrible twos. Maybe some of you have been there. They shriek and they hurl themselves down on the floor of the supermarket. I really want X, Y, chocolate bar, toy, whatever it is. Their will is making demands and their mind has learned that if they just keep going and keep going, screaming and screaming, eventually the parent will give in to their demands. I know we're all thinking, we've never done that. Those of us who've been parents, that would be a terrible thing to do parenting-wise. The truth is that when we sin, we're not actually that different from that spoiled toddler. Kicking and screaming to make a scene and demand that we get our own way. We're not interested in some divine, moral, parental authority figure and whatever wisdom that they might try and help us to understand. We're not interested in waiting. We want it now. We get it now. God says, okay that's your way, and he releases us to it. Even Oscar Wilde said, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. Interesting. And the more I thought about this, the more I realized that you could almost say it like this. Consumerism says that we're the product of our own choices. Now, wisdom says that's not always the best thing for us, but you could see it as God being like the ultimate consumer champion, saying, I'm going to give you the freedom to pursue your own choices, And become all that you want to be. I'm not going to stop you. Instead he allows us, Paul says, to reach our idolatrous goals. To take it all the way. The result of humans being handed back the reins of God. The reins of their life. And it doesn't end well, does it? It leads to confusion of sexuality. And on to a world of total depravity. And the verses in 26 and 27 are pretty contentious. They're not about idolatry, I don't think. Sorry, they're not about sexuality primarily. They're about idolatry. And this is certainly not the whole of the Bible's response to sexuality issues. But if human relationship with God is broken, which we know it is, then humans will experience that brokenness in their relationships with one another. There are many examples of this. Greed and gossip and backstabbing and evil. And Paul also talks about a brokenness that spills over into our sexuality, which is very much part of our humanness. And Don't forget that Paul was living in a Greek and Roman society which was incredibly sexually liberal in every way possible. Paul's views then were just as unpolitically correct as they are now. So first of all, he highlights all sex outside of marriage as dishonorable. By the way, if you've got little kids in here, sorry about that. Paul says if you're in a sexual relationship with someone who isn't your husband or wife, then you're not working within God's original design. It's not his best plan for you. And then more specifically, he cites same-sex physical relationships, men with men and women with women, as a confusion of God's original design. Now let me make a couple of things clear here. He's talking about intimate relations and not inclinations. That's the first thing he's quite clearly talking about not just about feeling attracted to someone of the same sex or somebody who isn't married to you. He's talking about taking that further. He's talking about the act of having sex. And the text implies that that's consensual and it's passionate. Now, this isn't really a surprise, given Paul's training as a rabbi in the Jewish law, which is very clear on this whole issue of sex and says that male-female sexual relationships within marriage are the best and only context for which God's designed sexual expression. Paul isn't singling out this practice or this sin over any other one. He's using it as an example and says this, idolatry, sexual confusion, greed, and all the things he talks about afterwards. All of these are examples that I see in society around me, Paul says, of people not following what God's plan is for their life. So in Colossians 3, 5, he defines greed as an idolatry. In Galatians 4, he says that people who keep the law and think that that means that they can be saved that's an idolatry when he refers to the due penalty I'm sure that he's talking about the consequences of all idolatry and not just of this one particular act now the church usually responds to this passage in one of two ways either we downplay the bible's teaching on sex altogether and say oh well never mind we'll just push that to the side That might be considered as a liberal view. The opposite extreme sometimes is that we teach that the homosexual sex is the worst sin imaginable and preach that message in preach that message in a really self-righteous and conservative way. And I think both positions are really unhelpful and really untruthful and really unloving. And they don't reflect the full message of the Bible or the gospel. Let me read to you something that Simon Ponsonby wrote. He's a really amazing Bible teacher. He wrote this The church has often been quick to condemn, but slow to help. I believe homophobia is a far worse sin than homosexuality. The hatred of others is far worse than what may be regarded as misdirected sexual affection. The church must be a place of grace, welcome, and space for all of us to journey into wholeness through Christ. Homosexual acts may be condemned as sinful according to Romans 1, but that is no basis for homophobia, which just adds sin to sin. While idolatry and homosexuality, me says, are clearly singled out here, Paul's point is not to isolate one or two sins, but to show that we are all guilty of sin. Indeed, the list of sins doesn't end there, but actually with a whole catalogue of sins through verses 29 to 31. And so we're in trouble if we highlight idolatry and homosexuality and pass over all of those other sins of which we're all often guilty. There's been a lot of negativity from the church towards people who struggle with these issues. I want to say this. I've written it on your sheet and I've put it in quote marks and then I tried to remember who'd said it and I remembered it was me. I said this. (laughs) Living up, this is under point three, living up to the Bible's sexual standards is a challenge for everyone. Say that again. Living up to the Bible's sexual standards is a challenge for everyone, whether you're married or single, young or old, gay or straight. We're all in the same boat. I'm really not trying to offend anybody, although I did tell you the gospel was offensive. The gospel reminds us, I told you last week, that we're all sinners in need of a saviour and Jesus welcomes everyone. Whatever background or belief, and so do we. And if you struggle with sexual temptation of any kind, then I just really want to encourage you to bring that to Jesus. We're not here to judge you, but to love you. You may have experienced rejection or hate or fear, and maybe in the name of God. And if that's the case, then I am so sorry. Because that isn't the heart of the gospel. Whatever your issue is, if you're looking to find Jesus, you'll find him here. And you'll welcome whoever you are. Now, look, this is by no means a complete response to the issue of sexuality. The Bible has a lot more to say. And you can't just take these things in isolation from. The rest of the Bible. If you'd value more of a conversation about that, then I would love to chat further. There's probably more to say. We don't have time to say it here. If you think you've heard me say something that makes you feel unloved, then I, wouldn't, I would want the chance to clarify that because that's not the heart of the gospel. I'd love to explain myself a bit more. If I, I don't know how to say this any clearer. I want this church to be a church where everyone is welcome. Where everyone is welcome. I mean everyone. Gossips, liars, slanderers, murderers, those who are greedy, those who are envious, those who are boastful. If you're genuinely looking for Jesus, then you'll also need to know that He says, Come as you are, don't stay as you are. Come as you are, don't stay as you are. He gently challenges all of us to take off our labels the ways in which we identify ourselves. I'm a liar, I'm a murderer. I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. And say, so, no, not, that's no way to identify ourselves. God says, identify yourself in Jesus. I'm jumping ahead to Romans a bit later. Listen to this, this list in the message, this list from 29 to 30. It's pretty intense and it's pretty damning. I love the way that Peterson, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, says this. this is, he says, since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them. And let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering, and cheating. Look at them, mean spirited, venomous, fork tongued god bashers, bullies, swaggerers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded. And it's not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well. They're spitting in God's face. And they don't care. Worse, they hand out prizes to those who do the worst things best. Isn't that incredible? They ditch their parents. Who would have known that a worse sin than all of that stuff is to not honor your parents? If you're thinking about lists and categories. Where do you see yourself in this list? We've all been there somewhere. Maybe some of us feel like we're in there now. That's okay. Remember what I said at the beginning? God's righteousness is available to us. It's freely available in Jesus, no matter how bad things have been or are. I don't have very long to just give you a little bit on chapter two, but I think it's important because it balances up some of this. And that's this. Not only do the... Non religious need the gospel, but the religious need the gospel too. This section in the Bible is called God's Righteous Judgment. But again, I like what the message says, which is this God is kind, but he's not soft. Paul is basically describing in the previous chapter this depraved and, to be truthful, probably mostly Gentile society, the Greek, Roman, Gentile that he can see around him. And his religious audience know this as they hear this passage. The suggestion is that he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles here. One commentator describes these people as critical moralizers. You can imagine these religious people listening to this list as the picture gets bleaker and bleaker and darker. And you can imagine perhaps the religious, you know, their self righteous pride swelling up inside. We're not like that. Clearly, he's not talking about us. We don't share those filthy practices and murderous ways. And Paul's so clever, he lures them right in. And then he hits them with this sucker punch in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, you therefore, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment, you do the same things. And now Paul starts to talk about the judgment of God. And he makes three broad points. That it's inescapable, that it's righteous, and it's impartial. And just very briefly on these, Paul says, just because you're not like them, you don't get lot off easily. Do you think you'll escape God's judgment, he says in verse 3? Paul is pointing the finger right back at people who are pointing the finger at others. You know that thing, don't you, we teach the kids. You know, when you point your finger, how many are pointing back at you? Yeah? Who are you to judge others, Paul says. Don't you slag them off for their misplaced sexual affection when you're spending your lives characterized by greed and dishonesty. What about this insipid gossip, Paul says, that corrupts and corrodes your relationships with each other? And we all love a bit of gossip, don't we? It's comforting. Spread the sins and the struggles of others. makes us feel so much better. Paul says it leads its venomous and cruel and cold-blooded And totally against God. There's a whole world out there, Paul suggests, that need an encounter with a loving God. And yet you people, the religious, you're so consumed with your own fighting and arguing and backstabbing and sexual politics that you've forgotten. There's a whole world out there that needs an encounter with a loving God. And in that passage, Paul suggests that by handing those people over to their sins, by releasing them, by taking his hand off, God is already exercising some kind of judgment on those people. But now he's talking about a much more final and ultimate judgment day, one in which the whole world will be judged according to God's standards. He's echoing Jesus' words when Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is in Matthew 5, says, I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, you fool, Jesus said, will be be in danger of the fire of hell. So this isn't a new idea for Paul. He's teaching, as the Bible does, that there will be a time, a day, at the end of time, when Jesus judges the whole world. And God's judgment is based on truth. Let me read you something that uh, Tim Keller said. In other words, on the final day of God's judgment, when I stand before him, the counsel for the prosecution will be me. God's judgment against those who do such, do such things, verse 2, is based on truth. And God is scrupulously fair in his judgment. He'll use, his own, he'll use our own standards. That's what this seems to be saying. The judgments that we made with our mouths as the standards by which we are judged. So the, there's a theologian in the 20th century called Francis Schaeffer, and he said it's like this. He called it the invisible tape recorder. You'd probably say an invisible dictaphone or an invisible MP3 player now. It's unseen, but there's a, a, this is how he described it. There's a tape recorder hanging around our necks. And it's recording everything we say to others and everything we about, say about others and how they ought to live. And then, at the last day, God, the judge, takes the tape recorder off and says, I will be completely fair. I will simply play this tape and judge you on the basis of what your own words say are the standards for human behavior. And Paul says, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Because if you do, you're not seeing this right. There is a day of judgment and no one will escape it. God's judgment is righteous, he says in verse 5. And in verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he's done. Now this is a bit of a contentious verse as well because some people think that Paul's contradicting himself here because in other parts of the Bible, Paul's very clear. You don't get saved by what you've done, you get saved by faith in Jesus. Faith, Salvation by faith and not by works. Some people say, oh, but now he's saying there's something to do with works. That's not true. Paul's very clear about that in other places. He's simply looking for evidence of a changed life. Simply because we've put our faith in God, Paul says, that doesn't excuse us from living up to it. God is looking for the fruit of a changed life. Doing good, seeking glory, honour and peace. All those things are described in chapter 2. It's a little bit like the apples on a tree prove that there's life in that tree, but they don't provide the life for that tree. The life for that tree comes from the roots of faith in Jesus. But the apples are simply evidence of life and nourishment from the correct source. God's judgment is righteous. And he is looking for evidence of changed lives. And the last thing, that it's impartial. There's no favoritism shown here. He says it's first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Now that's a really big deal for the Jews to hear. And we'll come back to that issue next week. He says if you're Jewish, you've got the law to reveal God to you and help you connect with him. And if you're not Jewish, Paul says, then you've got God's revelation of himself through creation. And here he's also saying you've got your conscience. To let you know what's right and wrong. Even those who haven't heard the gospel will be judged according to their conscience. Their inbuilt thermometer that tells them what's right and wrong. That's what he says. And in verse 16 he sums it all up saying this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. As my gospel declares. And don't forget that because this stuff is really tough and it's hard to hear. But it's part of the gospel. As my gospel declares. God's just judgment is fundamental to his declaration about his son without judgment salvation has no meaning without the reality of god's present and future wrath the cross huh, it's not there anymore the cross is emptied of its glory and all of us stand on level ground and all of us face judgment We all deserve wrath, and only from this place of acknowledging that can we fully see who Jesus is. How do we respond to that? Three quick things Be real. When you read these chapters, acknowledge that this is a picture of the reality of the world we live in. Recognize both God's beauty at work in it and also God's justice at work. And look for God's mercy through the cross. Last week we were praying, some of us leaders, and um, I had this picture, it was a little bit like the opening to a James Bond movie. If you've ever seen the old traditional titles for the James Bond movie, they're all sort of black and white, and then a a sort of filter, a colour filter comes down across the whole picture. Do you know what I'm talking about? If I was really good, I'd I'd have found it on YouTube and shown you, but I didn't have time. And it's a red filter. And I felt like the Lord showed me that picture a bit like that and said, what I'm after is a blood-soaked church. A blood-soaked church. A blood-soaked body. Jesus' body, his church. Who know what it is to live with the reality of the cross. We've sung about that this morning as we've sung about Holiness. The second is to make it personal. Let's avoid slipping into the judgment of others. Let's just humbly acknowledge our own weaknesses and our needs of God because we're all in that place. Lastly, don't fear. Don't fear God. Don't fear judgment. Don't fear wrath. Come to him. We sang that this morning. Boldly, I approach your throne. Fantastic song choice this morning. Boldly I approach your throne. There's an, by your grace I stand. See, we don't need to fear the wrath of God because as I said right back at the start of this thing in verse 16 and verse 17, we have received his righteousness by faith. So humbly and in freedom, come to God and ask for that again. Identify, where are the idols in my life? Where is stuff getting in the way of me and God? And turn over those desires to him there's a really killer and key verse in chapter 2 and verse 4 and I sort of skirted over it but it's very very it's a little thing but it means such a lot and it's this God's, verse 4 God's kindness leads to repentance God's kindness leads to repentance you see if you're here and you're feeling condemned right now that's not from God but if you're feeling the conviction of the spirit then maybe that is you know when my kids are really 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 bad and they do really really bad things I still put my arm around them or sit with them I can't I don't turn away from them I don't you know I might be angry for a minute but basically I say look you, what you've done is really wrong and it may be that there are consequences of that but I still love you and I'm just a pretty average father to be honest compared to God The art of celebration that's what we're saying this morning this is the art of celebration that we're free from condemnation. So wherever you're at, and whatever the Lord is saying to you now, I'd love to just encourage you to come to him today. Can we stand together?
2: This is a really sobering message, isn't it? We can't um, just kind of brush over what the Bible says and what God is saying. And it might be that you have known God for a long time, and yet today he's just put his finger on something to say you're not living up to the standard that I expect of you because I love you, because I, I have better for you. And so it might be that he's just pointing something out, something that we would call, call sin that he wants you to say sorry for and to be washed free from or released from. And it might be that today you don't know Jesus and you've never kind of understood about this, but you're sitting there just or standing there just saying, This is me and the temptation is to hurry away and just kind of close the door on what you are seeing and hearing today. And I just really encourage you that if you have your heart is burning inside and you you're feeling something about this Don't run away from it because God is pursuing you because he loves you and he wants you to have a brand new start free from this. So we're just going to pause now and just be quiet and invite God to come and speak to each one of us whether we know him already or whether we've never heard him speak to us before. God, thank you for the truth of your of your words that you've written down in the Bible, even those though, even though those are desperately uncomfortable sometimes, I ask that you would just come and speak to us individually and show us how you want us to respond today. Our God is here, and we're just going to wait. And in the quiet, if He's highlighted something to you that is offline, that isn't what. He, the way that he wants you to live, now's a good opportunity to say sorry. The Bible promises that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just. He forgives us our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I just invite you to say you're sorry to Jesus now.
0: I'd just love to invite you to respond to God in whatever way I feel like he's challenging you to now. There is a space here at the front and sometimes it's just a really good thing to acknowledge what God's doing and uh, step out of your comfort zone and just and just stand or kneel before him. In a couple of minutes, the band will come and just play gently as well. But, so if you, if you want to respond to God in that way, if you want to respond to what he's saying or doing, then I'd just love to invite you to come. This is a place of grace and mercy and love, which is not a place of judgment or condemnation. It may be that you've prayed and you've asked God to forgive you for something and you feel like what, what would be really useful or helpful for you is if somebody was able just to declare that forgiveness over you. If you're stuck somewhere in that, then we'd love to help with that. There are people here who would just love to pray for you. They don't even have to hear all the details of your confession, they just leave to pray the forgiveness and the blessing of God on you. And if that's the place where you're at and that would be helpful for you or valuable, why don't you come as well? Just come and stand in this space. Bless you for coming. There's some more as well of you. If you want to come, just be... Let's have some people come and stand with these folks as well. Let's have some people from the church just come and gently lay a hand on and bless what God is doing. And pray God's blessing. This is a safe place. This is not anything that we, Joe or I, or any of us here want to manipulate or do in our own strength. But if the Spirit of God, which I sense he is here, if the Spirit of God is here and he is at work, then let's acknowledge that. Let's acknowledge that. And let's work with him on that. It may be that you just need to sit where you are and soak in God's presence for a bit. And think about what it means to be soaked in the blood of Jesus. That's quite a graphic image but it's a powerful image. So as you do that just be released. The guys are going to pray. Holy Spirit we thank you for your ministry among us. All that you've started to to do with us all that you've started to say to us we want to open ourselves up to, to your challenge. And Lord where you're just gently challenging us to think maybe to make a change maybe to acknowledge something in our own lives Where you're doing that Holy Spirit we, we just say yeah we say yes to that even though that might feel like a scary thing we say yes to you to what you're doing Holy Spirit and I'd just love to say again this is a place of love and acceptance and no matter where you're at there is love and acceptance in Jesus. He says, come as you are. He says, come as you are. And if we can help you with that in any way, we'd love to do that.
2: It might be that you've come today with another kind of need. You need some healing. We'd like somebody to pray for you for something else. And now would be a really great time to come forward for that too. And otherwise, the band will play and you're welcome to sit and or just to worship. If you've got children, please that go and release them from Kids Ministry and thank the team who've been serving there today and we look forward to seeing you maybe this evening or certainly next Sunday if you're around, come and join us and worship together again Thank you